Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation and special musical performance with pianist and composer Suzanne Chiani. Hi, friends. Welcome. Glad to have you all here. My name is Michael Lerner. I was the co-founder of Commonweal almost 40 years ago. I'm still here uh, with some of my colleagues. Uh, Burr Henneman, co-founder. Burr, would you stand for just a minute? Is uh, also here. Um, and um, I just welcome you to this concert and conversation. So, um, what is Commonweal? Um, Commonweal uh, began in about 1975. Uh, I was walking on the Mesa in Bolinas and looked at the site and had a very strong sense that we might build a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth. And that vision has held for almost 40 years. Uh, Burr Henneman and another Bolinas resident, Carolyn Brown, and I came together and uh, were young enough and crazy enough to believe that uh, with no resources and nothing going for us at first, that we might get a hold of this site and build what you see 40 years later today. So Commonweal, uh, healing ourselves, healing the earth is a sort of a broad conception, but if you speak a, a more sober language, you can call it a nonprofit center with work in health, environment, education, and justice, and with 12 different programs in those four arenas, uh, many of which have achieved national or international reputations. Uh, so uh, we're well known for our work with cancer, our week-long retreats for cancer patients, which I co-lead, have been going on for uh, 30 years. Um, we uh, have a international partnership on environmental health sciences called the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which has about 5,000 partners around the world discussing the latest science on how the environment affects the pandemic of illnesses that we all live with. Um, Rachel Naomi Remen, uh, many of you know her work, uh, world-renowned uh, for her work in uh, transpersonal healing, uh, has, an organiz has a project here called Ishi, which uh, is, has a program called The Healer's Art in 70 medical schools around the world. Um, and um, the new school, which you're part of here, uh, is one of our newer projects, about uh, seven, eight years old now. We've done 170 conversations like this, and there's a partnership of about 3,000, which you can join just by signing up to get the newsletter. And, um, um, and we do events and performances and things like that, sort of Terry Gross-type conversations. Um, there are many other projects here. The Regenerative Design Institute at the Commonweal Garden attracts students from all over the world. So you can think of us as a, uh, if you're kind of a counterculture person, you can think of healing ourselves and healing the earth. If you're more sober and business-oriented, you can think of us as a social, as a think-and-do tank for social entrepreneurs. We've, we find enormously gifted program directors and leave them completely free to develop their programs and provide a sense of community within which they work. So you can learn more about us at the website. And Kira Epstein is our 
coordinator of the new school, and we're deeply grateful to her. Uh, and um, so we welcome you to the community. If you've been here once, you're part of our community, and we hope you'll sign up to get the newsletter. So now it is my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Suzanne Ciani. Suzanne, welcome. Come on in. So I will only briefly introduce Suzanne now because we'll have the conversation afterward, but Suzanne is also a Bolinas neighbor and uh, an extraordinarily, extraordinarily gifted pianist and composer who was also a pioneer of uh, electronic music and has done extraordinary things with her career. I've been immersed in her work. So we are... Um, Deeply grateful to have Suzanne inaugurate this beautiful piano, which came to us uh, recently from uh, Robert and Beth Satrakian. And we're just overjoyed to have you inaugurate this new dimension of our work. Thank you so much, Suzanne.
Thank you. It is so lovely to be here in our community. So this is like the most local concert I've ever done. And uh, <laughs> I used to think local was Mill Valley, but uh, thanks to this beautiful piano, which is a wonderful addition to the community, uh, I'm playing here for the very first time. Uh, I opened with a piece called Eagle. And the reason I play that piece is so I can tell the story that goes with it. So, <laughs> I used to live in New York City, and I wrote pieces by taking expeditions out of the city. So one time I came to California, Northern California, and I stayed at my sister's house in Inverness. And I saw these beautiful, magnificent birds in the sky and was inspired to write that piece. It was years later, in a kind of offhand <laughs> way, that my sister informed me, because she is a birder, no less, you know, she's a birder, that those were not eagles. <laughs> That's right, you people all know they were turkey vultures. <laughs> so all I can say is thank heavens for my ignorance, because I don't think the song... <laughs> I could... <laughs> I could probably write that song, Turkey Vultures, but it wouldn't sound like that. <laughs> the next song was uh, La Mer. So the sea has always been extremely important to me in my composition, in my music. My early, my very first album was called Seven Waves, and my compositional form was the form of a wave. So it would just build to a climax and, and recede. And so it is... No accident, I guess, that I moved from New York City to the end of this, you know, Ocean Avenue, where I live by the ocean. And that's where I wrote La Mer, looking out the window of my little cliffside house. So my house is fragile, and it's an experiment in living in the present, because it's not... You know, it, it, it's eroding, it's disappearing. It's not an investment property. Uh, <laughs> and um, in honor of my house, I wrote a piece called Ocean Avenue. And that's what I'd like to play for you now. Ocean Avenue.
Thank you. Thank you. And that's a piece called Pretend. And it was written uh, about the time of... Uh, you know, Bellinas was magical for me because I came here from New York City and uh, I met my husband right in my house, like a week later. <laughs> and that was the song about our divorce. <laughs> So many things have happened. <laughs> so, yeah, my music is very romantic. I, I think I've been cured, though, of romance over the years, but uh, this uh, next song, Neverland, was one of the very romantic songs. I had gone to the Netherlands, which is maybe why it's called Neverland, I'm not sure. Um, maybe it's about boys who never grow up, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had an experience uh, on a horse, you know, riding. Those, they have wonderful horses in the Netherlands. And uh, so this song is really about a horse. It's called Neverland. And later when I moved to Bellinas, uh, we made a video here on Limantour Beach. So we had this beautiful horse and we animated it. And the story was that the horse meets this little girl on the beach she grows into this beautiful woman. He sweeps her up into the sky to this magic castle in the clouds where she meets her prince. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I guess they live happily ever after. But the truth is that the girl ends up with a horse. And that's the real romance. This is... This is Neverland, and uh, okay, here we go.
You're listening to a special musical performance in conversation with Suzanne Ciani, hosted by Michael Lerner. That was um, the title song from my uh, first album on private music. And that was the first time I was nominated for a Grammy. It was the first year they had that category of New Age music. I'd like to do a group of songs for you now. Um, and these, a lot of them I picked because of where we are. I think Commonweal has a certain mystique about uh, healing and uh, vulnerability and transition, love um, of a spiritual nature. So the first song I picked is called Go Gently. And this is a song that is, the title is in reference to the Dylan Thomas poem, Do Not Go Gentle, which is a poem he wrote for his father when his father was dying. And this is a piece I wrote for my dad when he was dying. And it's called Go Gently. After that is Sonio Agitato, which sounds so lovely in Italian. And it means nightmare. Uh, and then the redemption after the nightmare is the velocity of love which is probably my most well-known song it's it's used at a lot of weddings and uh, it, it's been around for a long time and then after that while we're all in that relaxed mood a, ple- a piece called Bersus which is after a Chopin piece called Bersus, and that means, you know, cradle. So it's kind of a lullaby, uh, but it won't put you to sleep, I hope. Okay, here we go.
my, my piano teacher is here today, so I'm so nervous. <laughs> there she is. Um, Sandra's making a Chopin album at my, my studio, and um, I just love Chopin. I, I, you know, I, I started out classically, but then I spent so many years in electronic music where I refused to play a piano, you know, because it was an inappropriate interface, uh, whatever. So, uh, <laughs> but eventually I, I came back to it. Uh, the next song is called Turning, and it's one of the only songs I've done that actually has lyrics. So in the original version on the Turning album, it is sung by a wonderful Asian singer that I met when I was in Taiwan. And it's a song about love. Uh, two people are together, and one of them turns away, and the other one says, well, just keep on turning until you come all the way back. So this is Turning.
you. So my last album came out in 2005. That's a while ago. But a couple of years ago, I went to Venice to write some new music. I used to write here. Uh, and I have written a lot of uh, music here, but uh, mostly outside my window. You know, I call them window pieces. Uh, but I, I think I've written everything out my window. <laughs> I've written everything here. So I went to Venice and wrote a tango. It was ridiculous because, uh, you know, tangos don't come from Venice. <laughs> but uh, there you go. Um, so I did first perform it. It hasn't been recorded yet. I did perform it in Uruguay. Uh, where I was told it's not a real tango, it's a milagro? It's a, it's a certain type of tango. It is a certain type of tango, but it's a lot of fun. So this is Tango Veneziano.
So now I, we come to the last song called Butterflies. This really is one of the window pieces. And um, not long after I moved here, uh, I looked out of my window and I saw that my hedges were alive. They were, they were just shimmering and moving and I, I didn't know what it was. And I, was it an earthquake? I don't know. Uh, and I looked at it, they were plastered with monarch butterflies. Just so many, and it happened, it happened the next year, and then it, it hasn't happened again, sadly. The first year, uh, I tried to write a piece for them, and I couldn't do it. The second year, I couldn't do it. And finally, I just said, look, just take any idea, you know, anything, and work with that. So that's where this piece came from and it's called Butterflies. And after this, um, Michael and I are going to talk, not too long, right? Just so we... 45 minutes. <laughs> okay, because it's a beautiful day. <laughs> and here is Butterflies.
listening to a special musical performance and conversation with Suzanne Ciani, hosted by Michael Lerner. Suzanne, that was beautiful. Thank you, Michael. That Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's such a joy. You know, this was deeply moving for me because um, uh, I've had a dream of having a really good piano here and having the room filled with our community. And, uh, and here the dream is realized, and it's such a powerful experience. How long have you had this dream? I, I can't say exactly, but the piano is my favorite instrument. Did you bring me out here in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> it could not be that it was all connected, but somehow it was just, I don't know what it was like for you all here, but there's an enormous sense of power. And also, it goes beyond that because we have this beautiful art that's up. Um, it's an exhibit that I didn't mention at the start uh, called Muse, the Art of Transformation and Healing. Uh, and there's a reception um, July 12th, uh, opening one, and then a closing one September 27th. But just um, to have the art, and to have you playing this extraordinary music, um, there are all kinds of resonances, and this room, which is right at the heart of Commonweal, often feels very empty. It's a big room, and we do art exhibits. But there's something about having a piano and having you do this music and having us come together. And I found myself wondering how I could do the conversation with you because your music was taking me to such a completely nonverbal place. <laughs> if I would recover in time to, to speak at all. <laughs> but that was most beautiful. Um, you know, as I came in, I was listening fortuitously to an NPR interview with somebody who was working at the interface of uh, neurology and music, and the interviewer asked her about the difference between recorded music and live performance. And I've listened to a good deal of your recorded music. Um, and I was just reflecting while I was here how powerful live music is. And I just wondered, what are your reflections on the difference between the music that you record and put out and your concerts? What, what is your experience of the difference? Well, I love doing live albums, too, because the energy really is good. It's a special energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has more... Uh, propulsion, I think. But, uh, you know, in recording, uh, you really have to be perfect because you're making a permanent record. And you, there's... I mean, it's not to say that you can't do a live recording and have some bloopers. I mean, that's it's okay. But I think if you are making a studio record, mm -hmm. you know, you're approaching it mm -hmm. slightly differently and the energy is different. Mm -hmm. You have such a fascinating life. I was counting how many different careers you've had in different ways. And it seemed to me, and you correct me, if, but you were trained in classical music at Wellesley and got your master's at UC Berkeley in music composition. And you met this remarkable man, Don Buchla, uh, a synthesizer designer. And you studied computer-generated music with John Chowning uh, and Max Matthews at Stanford's Artificial Intelligence Labs. Um, but a lot of your early work was with this instrument I'd never heard of before called the Buchla. Uh, and, um, and actually, it reminds me, the visual image in my mind is of one of those old-fashioned telephone switchboards with the, the operator plugged 
chords into, you know. Yes, that's And that's actually, you just did a, in May, you did a, a performance with the uh, tantra, Neotantric. Neotantrics in New York, which was... With, in, which was this kind of music, right? Yes, at Lincoln Center, we had, it was part of the Unsound Festival. Right. Yeah. And what characterized that to me was that you have such a strong melodic sense in this music, extraordinary. But that music, at least for my, I, I know nothing about music except, um, but that seemed sort of ambient sound in some sense. In other words, I didn't hear a melodic, maybe it's just my ear, but I didn't hear a melodic Element. It's a completely different language, a different vocabulary. Uh, when I approached it in the early days, um, my music was melodic, but it wasn't melodic in, in the sense of um, a continuous melody, but I used pitches. And a lot of times in electronic music, people don't, they're not pitch-centered. They're noise-centered. So they make n different kinds of noises. It's, it's easy to make noise with that. <laughs> So you were pitch-centric, but were, did, was there melodic as well as pitch in your early music? Uh, yes, in a different way, because you're working with the machine. And, so the, and, and it's not unrelated to other approaches to uh, music composition. Uh, you know, Boulez used these uh, musical cells. So there were certain relationships of pitches, and I used sequences. But the sequence being a selection of 16 notes, but the truth was you could access it any direction. It didn't have to just go laboriously from beginning to end and repeat and repeat and repeat, because this was a very sophisticated machine, the bukla. And you could feed the sequences into a central uh, control and then access them upside down, backwards, you know, combine them. So it was, a, it was a different sense of melody. You had to make the choices of the pitches so that they would work in all these directions. And that's, that's what it was. And I am releasing some of the very early stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so another uh, career you had, I mean, one of the things that struck me as I looked at your life and listened to you, was what, I mean, all artists need a, a fierce sense of purpose to do art. That's, that's just true. But you were also a woman doing this work at a time when uh, things were blocked for women in different ways and in a number of different aspects of your work. So I think I remember your, your saying that as a composer, it was difficult for you as a woman to see a career as a composer but with this instrument, the bukele, you, you could control everything. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So right. The, one of the dimensions of what attr attracted you was your complete control of the medium as a composer. And my independence, and my ability independence. to realize my music without needing or depending on any outside right. resources. Right. But it was expensive. It was expensive. Yeah. And, and that, in, in turn, led you into commercial work so yes. that you could support your art. Feed my habit. Yeah, and actually <laughs> almost all of us have heard your commercial work because all of us have heard the sound of a bottle of Coca-Cola being opened and poured, which was one of your most widely recognized pieces of work. Mm -hmm. And so with this electronic equipment, you could do all of these extraordinary sound effects that they had trouble doing. 
So you were commercially very successful with... I, I actually call them musical effects instead of sound effects because you could control the musical parameters of the sound in a very subtle way, but, you know, pitch, the rhythm, uh, so that uh, because you could enhance and heighten the reality, the real sound didn't frequently do it. If you, if you bit into a potato chip... It just didn't sound like very much. But if you then created the sound of biting into a potato chip, you could have the sound of the salt spraying away, the sound of the, you know. And, and so you could heighten right. reality. So you also did um, uh, something, uh, the Mecco's disco version of the Star Wars soundtrack, which went platinum, uh, and you scored... Uh, Lily Tomlin's movie, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, you also did uh, a 1986 86 documentary for Mother Teresa. And uh, you did uh, One Life to Live, the soap opera. So you did, you've done a variety of, of uh, commercial things. And did you, I know you did that partly to feed your habit, but did you also enjoy the commercial work? Oh, I did. I mean, I, I was... My commercial work in advertising was at the, the height of that era. You know, it was when creativity was respected and you had a lot of freedom. It was shortly after that that the suits took over and uh, the, the Harvard, you know, business school graduates and with their, you know, bean counting. And the whole life, I think, went out of it. Uh, and you got out. I got out, yeah. So independence, again, is a theme here. Yes. You don't like to be told what to do. No. No. <laughs> you know, I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, starting around 1982, you started recording albums in a new age genre that, according to Wikipedia, I don't know if you'd characterize it that way, that involved a mix of electronic and traditional instruments. And that's when you put out Seven Waves, which was released in 1982 in Japan, and then 86 Velocity of Love. Uh, you played from Pianissimo, uh, and uh, then you have the private music of Suzanne Gianni in 1992. Um, so, um, that mixing of electronic and traditional instruments, tell us a little bit about what went into that. Because you've, you've done electronic music, you've done, you do, you know, piano, and this was a mix of the two. So what were the challenges for you in that integration? Well, my first album was entirely electronic, Seven Waves. Uh, but it contrasted from my earlier work in electronics, which was live performance, in that, you know, I was frustrated in my pure electronics because nobody understood it at all. They didn't understand where it was coming from, how it was being done. They couldn't get that a machine was actually an instrument. And I think that that frustration led me to combine my classical roots with my electronic sensibilities. And my first album, Seven Waves, is very melodic. But it also is very electronic, so it's a combination of the two. Then the second album uh, 
was electronic up until the last piece. That's the velocity of love. The velocity of love. And that piece I added a piano. And from that moment on, and that, that piece hit a nerve. You know, it just became the number one song on uh, radio that just started playing this new genre. Uh, and from that moment on, I did, with Neverland, the third album, uh, there are more acoustic instruments until finally, you know, the last album that I did before I came here was completely uh, orchestral. There was no electronics in it. So I went kind of the whole uh, gamut. There. Early on, I noticed you did an, uh, an album uh, with Joe Henderson, the great jazz tenor saxophonist. Is that correct? In 1979? Or do I have that wrong? Gosh, you know, I played on a lot of albums because I was a session player, and okay. I don't even know what I played on. It's called Yama. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. And also, uh, I noticed one with uh, uh, Youssef Abdul Latif called In a Temple Garden. Do you remember that? Boy, this is computers at work. Uh -huh. They know more than I do. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I was just interested in that. Yeah. So... Um, you had a, a health scare when you were in New York that um, led you to decide you'd had enough of the fast lane, and that's what brought you to Bolinas, is that right? Yes. Yeah. That and an ad that my sister put in the Point Reyes light. Uh-huh. <laughs> and your sister's here with us. Yes, she L does. Lives in Inverness. Uh -huh. um, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And I came out here for a year. Mm -hmm. That was 20-some mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how's it been living on Bolinas for the last 20 odd years? Uh, you know, when I first came here, I missed, well, I still had my New York energy. And so I didn't even really notice that I had completely changed environments. <laughs> and I did complain a lot for the first 10 years, my sister will tell you that, you know, uh, so you can, you can take the girl out of New York City, but you can't take New York City out of New York. You know, I have to say that I have considered Bolinas an exurb of New York for the last 40 years or so. Let's think of it that way. That could be the solution. Yeah. But it's wonderful out here. It's very healthy. I'd go back to New York. I could never live there again. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I love it here. I do. You also did a, a DVD uh, called Galapagos, a musical odyssey. You, you went to Galapagos and, and did a piece on that. We have, yes. We have resonances here with Galapagos. And, and when you talk about your relationship with... Uh, what is the name of that instrument? I can't keep it. Bukla. 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 There's some quotes from you that... That at, at a certain point you said, when it broke down, I would break down. I had to wean myself from it just to survive. I had to have interventions. People would say, you've got to do something else. So that was part of it, being too dependent on this thing I couldn't count on. It had to go all the way out to the West Coast and come all the way back each time it needed to be fixed. And if it made one trip, it wouldn't make another. Then somebody stole half of it. I found out about it 20 years later when somebody sent me a photograph. So the, the, the equipment was very demanding. Yes. And again, you didn't have that independence. You were, again, dependent on the, the equipment. As it turns yeah. out, I was dependent on the equipment. Yeah. It was fragile and uh, couldn't be counted on. Right. Yeah. 
And with the huge advances in technology, did that tempt you to, I mean, you, you write about the fact that you can now borrow somebody else's bucla and play on it and so forth. But has that tempted you because of the increase in control to get back more deeply into electronic music? I have gone back to electronic music just about a year ago mm -hmm. and uh, did a concert in LA and then one in New York. And it's different this time around. Technology is always different because it's always changing. And so some of the principles of uh, live performance on that instrument are the same. But what's ruined it in a way is that now there's a memory. Uh -huh. In the early days, you were just on your toes all the time because there was no storage of any kind. And you had to, you know, it, it took an amount of, of um, brain power that I probably don't have anymore. You know, <laughs> I think just to, to keep that going. And now uh, the fact is that you can, you know, store things. And so your whole approach to it changes. You think of it more as a storage system where you create something, you store it, then you go on and create something else. You don't have to worry about how you get from one thing to the other, which was the whole you know, challenge. Mm -hmm. the At one point, I think you said that you were in love with the Bucla. I was. I was in love. So I go to New York, and I meet, believe it or not, a man... Bill Parada, I just remembered his name, who all my dream was was to perform live on this instrument. And I met a man who said he would be my agent. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, I mean, nobody even knows what this is. And he said, well, if we're going to work together, uh, I want you to take this course. I think it will help us to communicate. I said, okay. It was a weekend course, big group of hundreds of people. And it turned out it was the Est. <laughs> and of course, my secret throughout all this is that I'm in love with the machine. And the big denouement of this whole training at the end was that people are just machines. That they have operating systems and that you can, you know, once you figure out the mechanisms, I mean, people are just machines. And I said, oh, then I'm okay. <laughs> you know this image of you. Yeah. There's an extraordinary image. You probably can't see it from here, but it's of Suzanne as a young woman. I'll pass it around. Uh, that is the Bucla? No, that's called the voice box. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a... My, I designed this. It was a lot of pre-existing uh, machines that I collected mm -hmm. in one uh, horizontal mm -hmm. you know, road case. And it allowed me to use my voice to control sounds and, and to process my voice. So this was pre-Bucla? No, this was post-Bucla. Oh, this was post-Bucla, okay. Mm -hmm. So were you, even, you were even younger than this when you were doing that? Yes. Okay. And it was overwhelmingly consuming. To, yes. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna just pass this around. Yeah. So, um, I want to open it up now for questions or comments from the audience. If we can keep the questions brief. Yes, in the back. How can you come and devote more of your songs to lyrics? Because I think that lyrics uh, uh, require very simple music 
In fact, that piece, Turning, has only four chords in it. Because when the focus is on the voice in the forefront, uh, you have to kind of neutralize the, the underlying. And I love counterpoint. I love, you know, s- complexity. It's simple. You know, my music is simple. But it also has a certain... So, so you resisted the temptation to uh, fall under the spell like a poet laureate that can write letters to compliment your music. Uh, you know, I'm open if anybody wants to try to write lyrics, you know. <laughs> Other questions, comments? Yes? Have you ever used a Moog or Moog synthesizer? Yes. And performed or know of? Not performing, because I don't... See, those instruments weren't designed really to be live performance. They were keyboard instruments, more, more so. And Buchla was the one designer who refused to put a traditional keyboard. You know, Bob Moog put it on there so that people would start to recognize it as a musical instrument. Because when it was just a box with a lot of knobs and and jacks, uh, people didn't get it. They thought it was a telephone system, you know, whatever, you know. So the keyboard made it, you know, familiar as a musical instrument, but it also short-circuited the potential of the instrument because uh, a black and white keyboard is mechanical. It really has no right in an electronic system. I mean, you don't need the mechanics. And it has one event for each uh, action. Whereas in an electronic keyboard, if you hit a key, you could maybe do 20 things hitting that key. It wasn't a, a one-to-one relationship. And a follow-up question? Yeah. Have you integrated computers into the music that you've been doing after? Well, I use computers all the time, mostly for recording. Yeah. And I did do, you know, I studied with Max Matthews, who's the father of computer music, and I worked on Music 5 at the very early computer music. And, you know, a lot of the principles of that are... Uh, you know, are still in my my uh, database here. So, but it's changed. Other question? Yes. Um, I I was really inspired by your music uh, today, and it felt very lyrical and dan- and, and uh, I'm curious. You haven't mentioned any um, collaborations with dance. I'm wondering if you have any background. In dance? With, collaboration with, with collaboration dancers. With, with dance. Well, in my Berkeley days, I used to work with dancers quite a bit. The David Wood dancers and other dancers. I love dance. Mm. I always wanted to be a dancer, but I have flat feet. <laughs> but your music hasn't been used, for example? Oh, you know, my dream would be have it used for ice skating, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I just love ice skating. Uh, and I, I, I would love to have it used, you know, with dance. I love, mm-hmm. I love dance. Are you a dancer? Yeah, well, I was, it just felt I was creating dances as I listened. Oh, so, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't stop. Spe- speaking of, of creating things, uh, I wondered, is music going in your head a lot of the time when you just go through your day? Is that, in other words, what relationship in your day do you have to... To music? None. None. Really? <laughs> None. Music 
doesn't happen in, for me in the day-to-day oh, world. How interesting. It's in a special bubble. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that I have to go to. So you have to enter that bubble for the music to... Yeah. And so do you do, you do that on a daily basis? No. How often no, do you No, I that? have too many bills to pay, uh-huh. you know, errands to do, uh-huh. and laundry. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I go away, because you really need to stop the chatter of daily life. I see. To enter that world. I mean, I could enter it here mm-hmm. in this brief moment. Mm-hmm. I was in that bubble. Oh, how interesting. But otherwise you're not. No. How interesting. That's really interesting. Other questions? Yes. I was wondering how you address attention and attention span in your compositional process. I think I'm AD, whatever. <laughs> what is that? How do you say that? Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, my attention... Uh, say that again? <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked writing short pieces. I'm a short piece person. I, I could, when I was working commercial work, I did one piece that was a third of a second for AT&T. And that for me was a compositional sphere. I could enter that third of a second, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And even when I was in graduate school, I would get criticized for writing short pieces. You know, things like, what, can't women write long pieces? (laughs) And uh, it's just something that uh, is my natural, uh, I mean, I don't mind going to the symphony. I can sit through a, you know, Wagnerian opera. Um, But all music can be compressed into a compositional structure. You know, there's this thing called Schenkerian analysis, where you take a Beethoven sonata and you say, okay, this is this note, then we go to this note, then we go to this note, and we you know this, Dale, right? that, you know, Schenkerian analysis, and you can take the architecture of a large piece and reduce it to a few notes or as much more compressed structure. So uh, when I did my first album, Seven Waves, I was more interested in slow. And electronics could let you do slow in a way that wasn't as accessible with instruments. Because with an instrument, you could only hold a note so long or bow it so long or, or it would resonate so long. And with electronics, the notes could last. And so the first piece I did, I took a composition that I had done on the piano and I slowed it down to half the speed. People couldn't play slow rhythms in the beginning. You know, that's why a lot of, you know, rhythmic music is kind of pumping like that, because that's, you know, you can keep the beat. But if you're trying to keep the beat on this very expansive scale, uh, it doesn't come naturally, unless you're a machine. So that was the attraction. That's how I made longer pieces. 
uh, I just used a very slow evolution of the sound. I know that's a very random answer to your questions. I, I could go on and on. I could, you know. <laughs> I want to come back to to your being in love with the Butte Club for a minute, mm -hmm. if I may. Um, I know. I think a lot of us quote anthropomorphize various. Like I love my car, you know. I really do love my car, <laughs> and and you know my wife sometimes says of our cars that, uh, you know, she says they hate it when we anthropomorphize them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so this human machine interface and love. There's this new movie out, right, about this guy who falls in love with, with his Siri or whatever. yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, so we really do have these love relationships, at least one way. I mean, we don't know. <laughs> they love us back. <laughs> but so, can you say a little more about being in love with a bugler? Were you truly in love with a bugler? Uh, I was. I mean, when I went to New York, that's all I had. Mm -hmm. You know, that was it. An apartment, an empty apartment with a bugler. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> It had lights and it spoke back to me and it, you know, it was on all the time. And, um, and it was, you know, it was a very special kind of intimate relationship. So, so what happened to this love relationship? Uh, Did it last? It had bad parts. It had bad it had, parts. <laughs> it had irreplaceable, you no. know, op amps. No. Okay. So it broke down. Mm -hmm. It broke down. Any last questions? Yes. Of all the many, many, and many wonderful pieces you've created, do you remember them all? I mean, do you have them all memorized all the time? Or if you haven't played something for a while, do you have to pull out some sheet music and brush up? Uh, I can usually get through a piece. I mean, yeah. I mean, I like to play them before I perform them, you know, <laughs> just to make sure I can remember the whole thing. Uh, but uh, I do have sheet music. I mean, I have four books of piano music. So it's true, if I need to check something out, I can go back. I have done that, yeah. One last question? Yes. I like your subtle syncopation and, and rhythm shifts. And do you ever interact with a percussionist or, or jam with people casually? Or is your compositional self-contained? I have one album called a live album where I play with a group of seven musicians from the Bay Area. And there's percussion in there, drums. Uh, that was a great experience. I think that, I, I don't know, I like to think that it's I mean, I didn't jam, you know, as a kid, kind of. You know, girls didn't do that. Uh, so I don't do it very much, but I'm very open to it. So before I say goodbye to Suzanne, I'd like to say two things. Uh, one is, uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Thank you, Kira. CDs, piano books, and DVDs are uh, available 
on the back table, right there. And so please place the money in the envelope. It's $15 each. Um, the other thing I want to say, um, those of you who've been here before know this, um, these events which we do free um, really depend moving forward always on your generosity to keep it happening. So there's a little contribution box there. There are envelopes on your seats and there are contribution boxes at the tea place downstairs. So if you can contribute something, whatever you can afford, it helps us keep um, the new school and the Institute for Art and Healing happening here. It's really critical to the ongoing work. So Suzanne Ciani, thank you for being with us at the new school. Thank you so much for inviting us. listening to a special musical performance with Suzanne Ciani, hosted by Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein, our audio engineer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Port O Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.